Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Evan. Delighted to be here this morning. We are in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter as our scripture reading right now. So I invite you to find Titus 3. Paul writes, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law and arguments are because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith, grace, and peace with you all. This is the word of the Lord. We have said over the last three weeks, as we've been talking about how to study the Bible, that all that we need is found in God's word. A couple of different times in the book of Titus, both in chapter two and three, uh, you get uh, a glimpse of the, where the words of the page point to the word, Jesus Christ because all that we need is found actually not simply in the words of the text, but to where they point, the word, Jesus Christ. That is where our salvation is found. And so I'm not going to review all the steps that we've gone over the last couple weeks. There are handouts in the back. You're welcome to grab those and look at how to study the Bible. This is the third of three weeks on how to do that. But I wanted to point out one of the important points again of the last couple weeks that needs to be highlighted, and then today's point, which those are the two most important in the process, in my opinion. The first is I pointed out both last week and the week before that prayer is the key point to this whole thing, because if all that, we've, uh, all that we need is found in God's Word, and it's pointing to the one who gives us salvation, if it doesn't point there in our study, if we haven't invested in that relationship, then what is the point of the whole thing? And so in the steps that we talked about on how to study your Bible, we talked about the idea of uh, if you're studying a short text section, a long section, doesn't matter. You want to read a broad piece of scripture that gives you the context. And after you've done that, take time to sit and pray in some way. 
And that doesn't have to simply be in a quiet room. You can figure out different ways to do that. But to take that time to pray is to take the time to digest that scripture in the presence of God. That's what you're doing. You're saying, I've just taken this all in. Now, God, what do I do with this? What will you do within me as I study your word? That's what you're asking. Much like Samuel goes to the Lord, or when the Lord calls him, Samuel says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's what we're doing when we go to the text. That's what we're doing in prayer. Scripture would point this out as meditation. It's taking concerted time to sit with the word of God in the presence of God. That's what it is. Uh, In Christian history, you often hear hear this spoken as rumination, ruminating on the Word of God, which is a bit of a graphic uh, way of thinking about how cows chew their cud. That's what we do with Scripture. I've heard it. Now I'm going to chew on it. That's an important step. The other really important step is the one we're on today, which are the implications of the text. We're asking the question, what now? If I've taken time to study God's Word, what do I do with it? That's where we're at today. And so we've talked about you want to get to the meaning of the text. We're not worried about translations. There's a ton of good ones out there. If you've gotten to the meaning of the text, you've understood the text. But if you've dissected everything and studied Scripture, and then you've come to the end, and you don't do something that it's asking you to do, you haven't done it right. Right? You haven't gotten there. You've got knowledge, but you haven't improved that relationship with Jesus Christ or with the living God through the process. This is much like we talked about a couple weeks ago that was very resonant for people, myself included, where I talked about we, we often hear people say, I should do, and then you fill in the blank. If we should do something and we don't do it, we don't actually think it's important to do that. This is getting at the goal of the text. What's the meaning of the text? It's asking us to do something that's what we should do. And that should be the goal. So the last two steps, just to to kind of get to the end of this and then talk about some implications in Titus. So we don't talk all morning about the the steps, but about the scripture. uh, When you're reading and studying scripture, you've done all this footwork to figure out what it is that scripture is saying. You've done word studies and all kinds of different things that you can do. Read it again. After you've studied your section, whatever it is, read it again in context. And I I would also actually advocate for, if it's possible, read it out loud. I don't know if you ever do this. I do this with the scripture reading. I I like to read my own scripture in the sermons because I hear different things when I read it out loud than just reading it with my eyes and taking it in. And as you read it again after studying the scripture, you start to notice different things and the words take on fuller meaning in their context. And as a bonus step, now that you've done all this, when you catch these texts that you've studied in your devotional reading, they mean that much more, that much quicker. You get that much more out of them. But this morning, I want to focus on the implications, the very final step. And I use the word implications. I was swayed to this a number of years ago by a pastor, preacher, scholar, Daryl Johnson, who I like very much. Super nice guy. Um, And a lot of times you'll hear application, at this point versus implication, I really don't care that much other than I think ap- implication is closely, more closely tied to that word exegesis we used if we're trying to understand the meaning of the text out of, out of its own context. Like as it comes out of the text, the implication seems like the word that fits better to keep us as close to that as possible. Application's fine, right? You can think of the difference uh, if you're applying something like a patch or you're applying cream or something, you're doing what needs to be done to make it work. That's what application is. Implication, I think of uh, 
more, more like uh, when I lived in Chicago, uh, about 25% of the time that you threw something in a trash can, a squirrel would pop out of it, right? It's, it's coming out of, that's what the implications are. Like it's the obvious thing that comes out of it. Um, and so that's why I like it. It really doesn't matter to me what word you use. The idea is that if you've gotten to the end of your study, you're asking the question, what is the impact of what I've studied on my worldview? But more importantly, what is the impact of what I'd study and how is that going to make me a better disciple of Jesus Christ? How will I be closer to him because I did this? What's the text asking me to do? That's the implication. So let's look at some implications that we could have seen. And if we were sitting down in a a class together, I'm sure we'd see a lot more. But these are the ones that I've seen over the past few weeks. So Titus 1 and 2. If we look at some implications from Titus 1 and 2, we can see that quality leadership matters. That's what Paul has been telling us, telling Titus and us, as it turns out. And what that means, Paul has defined it, that quality leaders are going to know what sound doctrine is. They're, they're going to know the beliefs, and they're going to teach them. Sometimes you'll hear people, pastors especially, say this. Uh, pastors will sometimes say, well, I'm not a theologian in their sermons. Well, but you are, actually, and you're supposed to be within your congregation. You're supposed to be kind of the resident theologian. Other people can be theologians, yes, of course, but you are supposed to. That's part of my job is to partially be a theologian within the body of Christ. We must know sound doctrine if we're in leadership. And quality leaders affect the quality of the people we discovered along the way in the book of Titus, right? Certainly, people may or may not always live up to the highest standard, but they certainly will, uh, if the leader is cutting corners, people will say, well, now I have permission to do it too. Quality leadership matters. And that is to say, a healthy church is then made up of people who follow a quality leader and hold sound doctrine and live it. That's what Paul has told us in Titus. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming for. So the implication that we could have seen in the text, among many others, is that if the leaders are supposed to be blameless and patient and honest and hospitable, as he said in chapter 1, by the time he gets to chapter 2, we realize actually everybody's supposed to be those things. Not just the leaders. The young women, the old women, the young men, the old men are all supposed to be like that. The leaders are just setting the pace. That's the idea for what the whole people are supposed to be. They should all know their sound doctrine and live it out. A second implication that we can see from chapters 1 and 2 is we must understand what we believe, which follows from what we just said. If the quality of the leadership matters and they need to know sound doctrine and teach it and people are supposed to kind of live it out, we have to have a clue what it is that we believe. And the first step of understanding what you believe is actually knowing what you believe, right? Leaders must be on task in leading towards sound doctrine in that and making sure people understand the basics of the faith and more. But what that means is if we're on the receiving end of that from the leadership, we should not resist sound doctrine and sound teaching. And what's interesting is as you, as you look in the text a little bit further, you can kind of see what that sound teaching looks like. And there's at least two sort of major components that I saw that Paul was flagging there, one of which I think we tend to like a lot, and one of which I think we tend to not like a lot. Paul says encouragement. 
He uses various different words to get at that same idea, but encourage the young woman, encourage the young man, or urge, that kind of thing. He's encouraging them. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to teach. You're supposed to encourage. But Paul also says, you got to rebuke where things are not right. Maybe you're not like me. Encouragement's great. Rebuke is harder. And what really struck me as I looked at things again this week, reading it again, is that encouragement could involve rebuke. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, for instance, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. So if a young man is self-controlled, we're in good shape, but if they're not, what's going to need to happen? Maybe some rebuke, right? Encourage them. Because Paul rounds out the whole thing with, if people aren't doing the right thing, we got a course correct. And so the kind of questions we can kind of come up with at this point, if we're writing down the implications of the text, you can ask yourself this, am I teachable? If I read through this and Paul says, you got to teach what's good doctrine, and I'm on the receiving end of that, am I teachable? And particularly, can I handle both encouragement and rebuke? That'd be an implication of this. And if I'm not teachable, does that mean that I prefer comfort over truth? Right? Those are the kind of questions that we would ask at that point if we're writing down the implications of what, what comes out of the text. And then even further, if we're talking about the teachableness, encouragement, and rebuke, how many unteachable individuals does it take to make an unhealthy church? Because that's all that Paul's getting at here. Paul's getting at the health of the church, people who have sound doctrine, who live it out, and can then demonstrate that. Rebuke matters, actually. It's not something we should go around willy-nilly doing. Uh, we shouldn't just uh, rebuke you, 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 that kind of thing. But actually, our first rebuke should be that we should rebuke an attitude that values comfort more than the truth. There needs to be love, but we cannot rebuke an attitude that values the truth within the community. Otherwise, we create false community. Those are implications of the text. We need to know what we believe. We need to understand that. And if we need to have a clue what we believe. We need to work out why. Of course, Titus doesn't tell us all the whys of why we believe. It does give us some of the, the issues if we don't understand that. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Right? The stakes are very high when we don't know what we believe, and when we don't even work at why. And we're never going to get the full why, I think, in life. We can understand some of why we believe what we believe. God gives us some of that in His Word. The very fact that God has given us His Word indicates He wants us to understand some of that right? That shows us that God is logical and rational and wants us to understand and can give us, and give us, has given us the tools so that we can understand that. And we can work at it. That's why we would study. We want, to kind of understand, we want to understand what and why we believe what we believe. 
third thing I noticed that is an implication from Titus 1 and 2, simply put, salvation is for all. We have to qualify that. Only those who say yes will be saved. We can also discover in Titus 1 and 2 that it's not simply that those who say yes will be saved, they're going to be transformed. Interestingly, it brings in Jesus in a number of different ways, but maybe not as much as you would have thought in a letter like this that Paul writes. And even the Holy Spirit is brought in, but not all that much. But you can see when it's brought in, it tells us exactly this. Salvation is offered for all. Chapter 2 says that. But only those who say yes are going to be saved. The Holy Spirit is in the business of, of that rebirth and renewal of making them a new creation, as Paul would say, in other places. And that transformation we can see in the text is intended for an entire community of believers to experience. As they are transformed, then they affect the local church and they affect the community outside of the church. In this case, the island of Crete and the towns in Crete. That's chapters 1 and 2, the implications I saw. If we go to chapter 3 then, we can see two more implications that we can add to this. The first one, I think, is just a good word. If we follow Jesus Christ, if we're disciples, disciples, we need to be reminded a lot. Right? We think we need to be taught, but we need to be reminded a lot. And it, Paul starts out this chapter 3 with that word, and I think it's a good reminder that this is what we need. Paul says in, in chapter 3, 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers, authorities, and authorities to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good. When you see that subject to rulers and authorities, obedient, do good, it all seems to go together, what Paul is saying there. And Paul is addressing the need to not be unnecessarily divisive, both in church and in the community, is what he's saying. To devote ourselves to doing good as a witness to Christ and his work within us that transformation that's going on through the Holy Spirit. I don't think, as I read this, that the text is saying that we can't ever stand up if, for instance, government were asking us to do something that we shouldn't do or that's not moral or that kind of thing. I don't think that's what he's saying here, right? Consider who the emperor was at the time. The emperor was Nero. Nero was particularly cruel to Christians there were many who patiently suffered under Nero. There are stories of such. They experienced martyrdom as well. But they gave a patient defense of the gospel, in many cases, which was countercultural. If the proclamation is Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, they said Jesus is Lord, that's a political statement against Caesar, even though they might do it with grace. Paul's point is not that you can't stand up against injustice or immorality from the top down. Paul's point is that day to day we ought to cooperate where we can with the governing authorities and do good. Let's not cause unnecessary trouble in the community or outside of the community. Let's look for good. And we know how that works, right? None of us sped here to church as fast as possible. I'm not saying you didn't speed. I don't know if you did. But none of us sped here to church, got pulled over on the way, and were both rude to the police officer and then said, you know what, officer? I live by grace, not by the law. 
right? It's not going to be a good defense. And frankly, the speed limits work, right? We're not, we're not in contest with a whole ton of laws like that. So let's do good. That's what Paul's saying. Let's not focus on just being troublemakers wherever we go. One of the implications or a couple of the implication questions that can come out of this, though, is we're reminded to not be unnecessarily divisive both in and out of the church is the witness question that comes with that, which is what Paul's getting at. So a question we could ask is, do you know how to act in a way that looks like you follow Jesus in the world? Another question we could ask is, do you live out sound doctrine in a way that reveals a good and generous worldview? And particularly, do you live out sound doctrine in a way that reveals a good and generous worldview to a self-interested culture? Because that's going to stand in contrast and show the goodness of the gospel. We need to be reminded a lot of what our role is as witnesses to the gospel. Last point that I saw as an implication from Titus chapter 3, and this is kind of the whole thing that Paul's been getting at, do whatever is good. That's what Paul's been saying. Do whatever is good. He got at that in chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject, and we read that part, to do whatever is good is the way he rounds that verse out. In verse 8, Again, he talks about, you know, it's a trustworthy saying. He says, I want, to, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. By the way, what is good is going to be godly. That's why we would devote ourselves to that. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone, he says. Good works matter and are witness to the goodness of God. age-old question, maybe it's not age-old, but it's old in our culture, I think, is can you be good without God? People ask it to me all the time. Can you be good without God? To which the simple answer is yes, but then the follow-up is why would you? Right, if you think it through. Can you be good without God? Well, yeah, but why would you? Titus 3.5, it says, he saved us not because of the righteous things, Good, the good and godly things, those righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That is to say, we could do a whole bunch of good things in this life without God. God's given us that capacity, but to what end? It won't bring salvation. Only Jesus does that. In fact, it'll get, we'll get to the end of life if we've done a whole bunch of good things, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. That's the downside of that. It's all for naught. We're still going in a corrupted direction instead of the pure direction Paul talked about early on. Being good is a response to God's salvation. It doesn't earn it. It's a response to God's salvation through Jesus Christ. But the other implication that we can see here that's very strong that we ought not miss is not simply that baseline point that we can't save ourselves, and being good is a response to God's salvation through Jesus Christ, but that being good is a team sport. That we are supposed to be good if we follow Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying, and that is the witness that we have to the world of the goodness of God, the gospel. 
and of Jesus Christ. Paul reiterates things like this, verse 14. It always seems weird when we read a whole letter and he's got the greetings at the end, but there's important stuff in there too. Even verse 14, he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why? In order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Paul at the very beginning talked about we've got to finish the work of planting the churches, putting established leaders in place or mature leaders in place so we can do this goodness as God's people. Chapter 2 is all about teaching sound doctrine and conduct so we can do good and be a witness to the world. Why? So that a transformed Jesus would share or transformed people would share the good news of Jesus on the island of Crete. That's why he's writing this letter implication at that point is if we're supposed to do good as paul's addressing to titus and to the churches of crete so that the good news would be shared on the island of crete we are supposed to do good as god's people as the transformed people of christ so that we would share the good news in the city of lincoln those are the implications that i see in the book of titus all that we need is found in god's word when we study it It all points to God's Word, Jesus Christ, who saves us and through His Holy Spirit transforms us. And because of that, we respond by doing good wherever we can as God's people so that others would know that salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those that don't know your Son, Jesus Christ, and do good and labor, but don't know the goodness of Jesus and His salvation. Lord, for anyone in the house or at home who doesn't know your son, Jesus, invite them in this morning. We also pray, Lord, for where we've had moments where we are not reminded to do good, where we are self-interested and selfish, that your son, Jesus, saved us because of how unselfish he was. He selflessly gave himself for us. God, may we emulate that in our lives as our response to the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. Your unique son that you gave us for salvation. May we experience that salvation and that abundant life today and that transformation to the Holy Spirit. Especially if we're in the room, Lord, and we've never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit within us, but we said yes to Jesus. May the Holy Spirit come upon us in ways that we never even knew possible that we would have the desire to do good burning inside of us like we've never had before and that we would go and do it. Lord, may that be the witness we have this week to your word. Amen.